Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. The things that we see going on in our culture today and in our world today are nothing less than part of this great cosmic battle that we are in. It really is, in its essence, the more you look at it and the more you understand what's happening in our culture, you really begin to realize this is a war. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Genesis. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, in a message titled, Made in the Image of God. Now, here's Pastor Brian. All right, let's open up to Genesis chapter 1. We come now in our study of Genesis 1 to the climactic moment in this creative process. We come to the apex of creation, the creature for which all the rest of creation was made. We come to the creation of man. But is man unique among the other life forms here on earth? Is man superior to the beast of the earth, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea? Is there something special about human life that makes it precious, even sacred, in comparison to plant and animal life. Now, I know most of us would agree that man is indeed unique by virtue of the fact that he is God's creature and he is created in the image of God. But there are growing numbers of people in our culture today who reject these ideas and They reject the idea of the sanctity of life, agreeing with philosopher Peter Singer, who said, the notion that human life is sacred just because it is human life is medieval. This particular philosopher is having a tremendous amount of influence in the intellectual circles in Western culture. And these kinds of ideas are becoming more and more the norm. A bit of news from Spain is an example of this growing notion in our culture. Spain gives rights to apes. Spain's parliament voiced its support for the rights of great apes to life and freedom, Reuters reports. Spain adopted this new policy at the behest of the Great Apes Project, a plan developed in part by Peter Singer and other philosophers and scientists who say the animals deserve the same rights as their closest genetic relatives. 
Australian-born singer dubbed the godfather of animal rights, has stirred up controversy by asserting, among other things, that Christianity is a problem for the animal rights movement. A professor of bioethics at Princeton University Center for Human Values, Singer attacks speciesism, which he defines as the belief that being a member of a certain species makes you superior to any other being that is not a member of that species. He also stated that a severely disabled infant may be killed up to 28 days after its birth if the parents deem the baby's life is not worth living. Spain's Environmental Committee of Parliament approved the resolution with cross-party support. If the resolution becomes law, it will mean that potential experiments on apes will be banned within a year. In addition, apes used for commercial purposes, filming or circuses, would become illegal. This is a historic day in the struggle for animal rights and in defense of our evolutionary comrades, which will doubtless go down in the history of humanity, Pedro Pozas, Spanish director of the Great Apes Project, tells Reuters. We have no knowledge of great apes being used in experiments in Spain, but there is currently no law preventing that from happening, Pozas notes. Apes in Spanish zoos, of which there are currently 315, will remain legal, according to the legislation, but living conditions reportedly will improve substantially. So evidently the apes will move from cages to condos <laughs> in an effort to accommodate our closest genetic relatives. Now, I want you to notice something that Singer said. And, and this guy, he's a professor at Princeton. I was at Princeton a few years ago walking around the campus. I was doing a, a retreat in Princeton, New Jersey. And as I was walking the campus and noticing the statues of some of the great evangelists and spiritual leaders of the, you know, back around the time of the founding of the nation, statues of men like George Whitfield and George Tenet. And, and to think that a man with this kind of mentality and uh, atheistic hostility toward God and the Christian faith that he would hold a professorship at that university. It's quite tragic, really. But notice what Singer is saying here. He talks about this speciesism. In actuality, that is a direct attack against the biblical view of man being Lord of creation and the sole bearer of God's image. So he's very much an opponent of the biblical worldview. I bring this up once again to show you the relevance of these chapters in Genesis. And once again, to remind you that the things that we see going on in our culture today and in our world today are nothing less than part of this great cosmic battle that we are in. It really is, in its essence, the more you look at it and the more you understand what's happening in our culture, you really begin to realize this is a war between 
God and Satan. And what we are seeing in these kinds of ideas that are proliferating in our culture, we're seeing this attack from the enemy against God, the things of God. We're seeing this increase right before our eyes. So we come to our text, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And there we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. We'll stop there. The first thing to notice, just in passing, we're not going to spend any time on this. We touched on it some time back. But notice the plurality. Let us make man in our image. God is speaking. And just a reminder to us of the biblical teaching that there is a plurality within the divine nature. That God is one, but yet there is a plurality within that one. And of course, this is a hint at what would later become clearly revealed in the New Testament period, the doctrine of the Trinity. I was listening to a debate a few days ago between a man named Jay Smith who debates radical Islamic fundamentalists in Hyde Park in London. And one of the things that the Muslims will often get riled up about and they'll begin to chant and to shout about their belief in one God and they will criticize and mock us Christians as believing in three gods. And as I was listening to this debate, this kind of thing began to take place. And the Muslims uh, being led by this particular person, they were all, you know, chanting, there was one God, one God, one God. And they were then mocking the Christians for believing in three gods and so forth. And, you know, as I was listening to that, I was thinking, of course, Christianity predates Islam by 600 plus years. The idea of one God or the monotheistic idea certainly was not part of Arabic culture. This idea originates with Israel. It originates with the Jews. The Jews were the one people in the ancient world who were known for their monotheism. And so we have the whole idea of one God originating with the Jews. And of course, Jesus and the apostles, the authors of the New Testament, they were all Jews. And of course, the New Testament teaches clearly that there is one God. The New Testament predates Islam by at least 600 years. And you think, you know, here's this group of people that have stolen this idea. And now, you know, they're laying claim to it like they're the ones that it originated with. And I was reading an article yesterday. Uh, The Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Rowan Williams, a pitiful fellow. He was talking about the need for Britain to 
introduced Sharia law. Now, in his most recent speech, which I read yesterday, he's warning Christians that we shouldn't be talking so much about the Trinity or be so dogmatic about that because that's offensive to Muslims. And, you know, you just think, what on earth are these people thinking? But this monotheistic idea, Islam stole it. It belonged to the Jews. It belonged to the Christians. It still belongs to the Jews and the Christians. But in in a sense, you know, they've sort of hijacked it and, you know, become the ones now to supposedly, you know, promote this idea of one God. But that one God, as we see here in our text, that one God exists in a plurality within his nature. There are three persons. And again, it is hinted at here. Now, that was just a little diversion. That's not what I want to talk about, but just wanted to mention that briefly. But notice, God is saying, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. Now, Everyone that I consulted as far as Hebrew authorities, they agree that the words image and likeness, there is not enough of a difference to to make any real difference. Basically, just the same thing is being stated. But, But what is being spoken of here? This is a question that we need to address, and it's something that we need to understand. I remember seeing a blasphemous little comic strip a few years ago where there was an extremely obese man sitting on his couch in front of the television with, you know, a bag of potato chips spilling over and a bunch of empty beer cans. And, and there the caption was, created in the image of God. What does it mean when the Bible speaks of man being created in the image of God? Well, it does not refer primarily to physical likeness. Although I do think that there is perhaps some connection there, but that that is not primarily what it refers to. Interestingly, in verse 27, we have the third, fourth, and fifth occurrence of the Hebrew word bara. And you remember the meaning of that word. It means to create from nothing. And so when it says that God created man in his image, it's, it's using that Hebrew word bara, which, of course, must then be referring not to the physical body of man or to the material aspect of man, but to the immaterial aspect of man. We know that God created man's body from the dust of the earth. But we're told here that God created man from nothing, so it's speaking primarily... I believe, of the spiritual aspect of man. But perhaps there is some physical likeness. God apparently designed our physical bodies so that we can do many of the things that we're told in Scripture that God does so that we can see, so that we can hear, so that we can touch, speak, think, plan, and so forth. To quote one commentator, 
he said, it would hardly be safe to say that the body of man is patterned after God because God being an incorporeal spirit cannot have what we term a material body. Yet the body of man must at least be regarded as the fittest receptacle for the man's spirit and so must bear at least an analogy that is so close that God and his angels choose to appear in human form when they appear to men. Now, what he says here, this, this commentator, Leopold, he says that God being an incorporeal spirit cannot have what we term a material body. And of course, if we understand what, what spirit is, we would agree with that. But I ask the question myself, does that mean that God cannot have a spiritual body? And I think that you can build support from the scripture that God is in some sort of bodily form. It's not material like the the material that we're made of, or it's not matter in the sense of what God created when he created the material universe. But in different passages of scripture, we find for example, God being seated upon the throne, and there is the image, there is a bodily image of God that is being referred to there. If you think of Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, there in Revelation chapter 5, we have one who's sitting upon the throne, and there's that glorious description that's given of him, and then in his right hand, there is a scroll And, of course, the lamb comes and and takes the scroll out of his hand. So, although God doesn't possess a material body like we do, it seems to me that there is some correspondence in some way between our physical bodies and, and God's spiritual body. And I can't say anything more about it, and nobody else can either, because... We just don't know. But it does seem that there is some connection, perhaps. But again, what is primarily being spoken of here is the immaterial part of man. We are body, soul, and spirit. The body, of course, is the material element. Our soul and our spirit are the immaterial elements of man. So when we read here in Genesis that God created man in his image, in the image of God created he, him, what is that referring to exactly? Well, I think there are three things that are being specifically referred to. First of all, God created us with personality. We are persons with personality, and our our physical bodies are simply a means of communicating that, but you know that your physical body is not you entirely. You know intuitively, you know that there's something else that's you that's more or less just living in this physical body. This is, this is a temporary dwelling place. It's a tent. The Bible refers to it as a tent. And this is something that we as people know more or less intuitively. I have this vivid memory of lying in my bed when I was a little kid. I was probably six or seven years old. 
But I remember it to this day. I remember lying there trying to figure out how you could die. And, and what I was trying to understand is, you know, how could you stop existing? How could I, even though I was a little boy at the time, but, you know, I, I am a, this distinct entity. How, how could I just not exist? And the reality is, I was onto something there. <laughs> you don't just stop existing. Your body might die, but that's just the material part of you. The immaterial part of us, of course, we know lives on. So, first of all, personality. Now, to have personality, one must possess knowledge, feelings, and a will. And, of course, that can be said of God. It can be said of us as well. We can say that animals possess a certain degree of personality. But an animal does not reason as men do. I find myself sometimes trying to reason with my dog. You know, she just doesn't get it. She doesn't understand why she shouldn't do the kinds of things she does. Because animals, they cannot reason as men do. They only react to certain problems or stimuli. Uh, An animal does not create anything in the sense that people do. It only conforms to certain behavior patterns, even in as elaborate a pattern as constructing a nest, hive, or a dam. Again, it's, it's more of an instinctive sort of a thing rather than a real creative type of a thing. Animals do not love as humans do. They only reproduce. And, of course, animals do not worship. So personality, in the sense that we're speaking of here, is something that links man to God, but it does not link either man or God to the rest of creation. I think one of the strongest and oftentimes overlooked manifestations of man being in the image of God is the fact that man is a creator. You see, out of all life in the world, man is a creator. And what we know historically as civilizations, civilizations are really man's creation and are indirect evidence that that man has been created. But think about the creativity of man. Think about all the things that men have produced over the the centuries, over the millennia. Think of some of the great buildings. There are ancient structures. There are modern structures that are just phenomenal. They're unbelievable feats. With my children living up in the Bay Area, it's taken us across the Golden Gate Bridge many times in the last few years. And every time I cross that bridge, I just think, astounding.
For the month of August, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history by John Dixon. Would the world be better off without religion? Does religion really poison everything? Many people today believe the world would indeed be better off without religion, and Christianity would be at the top of the list for most. In his book, Bullies and Saints, John Dixon considers these questions through the lens of Christian history. He examines the different periods of the Christian church, from its founding in antiquity to the Middle Ages, the 20th century, and what we can learn from history today. This book will challenge your thinking about the Christian church that is worse and better than you ever imagined. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history by John Dixon. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Genesis. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.